This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alarms and Discursions by G. K. Chesterton. Section 9, Chapters 25 through 27. The Field of Blood. In my daily paper this morning, I read the following interesting paragraphs, which take my mind back to an England which I do not remember, and which, therefore, perhaps, I admire. Nearly sixty years ago, on September 4, 1850, the Australian General Haynau, who had gained an unenviable fame through the world by his ferocious methods in suppressing the Hungarian Revolution, in 1849, while on a visit to this country, was belabored in the streets of London by the draymen of Messrs. Barclay, Perkins, and Company, whose brewery he had just inspected in company of an adjutant. Popular delight was so great that the government of the time did not dare to prosecute the assailants, and the general, the woman flogger, as he was called by the people, had to leave these shores without remedy. He returned to his own country, and settled upon his estate at Cesarkis, which is close to the commune above mentioned. By his will the estate passed to his daughter, after whose death it was to be presented to the commune. This daughter had just died, but the communal council, after much deliberation, has declined to accept the gift, and ordered that the estate should be left to fall out of cultivation and be called the bloody meadow now that is an example of how things happen under an honest democratic impulse i do not dwell especially on the earlier part of the story though the earlier part of the story is astonishingly interesting it recalls the days when englishmen were potential lighters that is potential rebels it is not for lack of agonies of intellectual anger the Sultan and the late King Leopold have been denounced as hardly as General Hainau, but I doubt if they would have been physically thrashed in the London streets. It is not the tyrants that are lacking, but the draymen. Nevertheless, it is not upon the historic heroes of Barclay, Perkins, and Country that I build all my hope. Fine as it was, it was not a full and perfect revolution. A brewer's drayman beating an eminent European general with a stick, though a singularly bright and pleasing vision, is not a complete one. Only when the brewer's drayman beats the brewer with a stick shall we see the clear and radiant sunrise of British self-government. The fun will really start when we begin to thump the oppressors of England, as well as the oppressors of Hungary. It is, however, a definite decline in the spiritual character of drayman that now they can thump neither one nor the other. But as I have already suggested, my real quarrel is not about the first part of the extract, but about the second. Whether or no the draymen of Barclay and Perkins have degenerated, the commune, which includes Cesarquies, has not degenerated. By the way, the commune, which includes Cesarquies, is called Kisarquies. I trust that this frank avowal will excuse me from the necessity of mentioning either of these places again by name. 
the commune is still capable of performing direct democratic actions if necessary with a stick i say with a stick not with sticks for that is the whole argument about democracy a people is a soul and if you want to know what a soul is i can only answer that it is something that can sin and that can sacrifice itself a people can commit theft a people can confess theft a people can repent of theft that is the idea of the republic now most modern people have got into their heads the idea that democracies are dull drifting things a mere black swarm or slide of clerks to their accustomed doom in most modern novels and essays it is insisted by way of contrast that a walking gentleman may have adventures as he walks it is insisted that an aristocrat can commit crimes because an aristocrat always cultivates liberty but in truth the people can have adventures as israel did crawling through the desert to the promised land a people can do heroic deeds a people can commit crimes the french people did both in the revolution the irish people have done both in their much purer and more honorable progress but the real answer to this aristocratic argument which seeks to identify democracy with the drab utilitarianism may be found in action such as that of the hungarian commune whose name i decline to repeat this commune did just one of those acts that prove that a separate people has a separate personality it threw something away a man can throw a banknote into the fire a man can fling a sack of corn into the river the banknote may be burnt as a satisfaction of some scruple the corn may be destroyed as a sacrifice to some god but whenever there is sacrifice we know there is a single will men may be disputatious and doubtful may divide by very narrow majorities in their debate about how to gain wealth but men have to be uncommonly unanimous in order to refuse wealth it wants a very complete committee to burn a banknote in the office grate it needs a highly religious tribe really to throw corn into the river this self-denial is the test and definition of self-government i wish i could feel certain that any english county council or parish council would be single enough to make that strong gesture of a romantic refusal could say no rent shall be raised from this spot no grain shall grow in this spot no good shall come of this spot it shall remain sterile for a sign but i am afraid they might answer like the eminent sociology in the story that it was a whisk of spice The strangeness of luxury it is an english misfortune that what is called public spirit is so often a very private spirit the legitimate but strictly individual ideals of this or that person who happens to have the power to carry them out when these private principles are held by very rich people the result is often the blackest and most repulsive kind of despotism which is benevolent despotism obviously it is the public which ought to have public spirit but in this country and at this epoch this is exactly what it has not got we shall have a public wash-house and a public kitchen 
long before we have a public spirit. In fact, if we had a public spirit, we might very probably do without the other things. But if England were properly and naturally governed by the English, one of the first results would probably be this, that our standard of excess or defect in property would be changed from that of the plutocrat to that of the moderately needy man. That is, while property might be strictly respected, everything that is necessary to a clerk would be felt and considered on quite a different plane from anything which is a very great luxury to a clerk. This sane distinction of sentiment is not instinctive at present, because our standard of life is that of the governing class, which is eternally turning luxuries into necessities as fast as pork is turned into sausages, and which cannot remember the beginning of its needs, and cannot get to the end of its novelties. Take for the sake of argument the case of the motor. Doubtless the Duke now feels it as necessary to have a motor as to have a roof, and in a little while he may feel it equally necessary to have a flying ship. But this does not prove, as the reactionary skeptics always argue, that a motor really is just as necessary as a roof. It only proves that a man can get used to an artificial life. It does not prove that there is no natural life for him to get used to. In the broad's-eye view of common sense, there abides a huge disproportion between the need for a roof and the need for an aeroplane, and no rush of inventions can ever alter it. The only difference is that things are now judged by the abnormal needs when they might be judged merely by the normal needs. The best aristocrat sees the situation from an aeroplane. The good citizen, in his loftiest moments, goes no further than seeing it from the roof. It is not true that luxury is merely relative. It is not true that it is only an expensive novelty which we may afterwards come to think a necessity. Luxury has a firm philosophical meaning, and where there is a real public spirit, luxury is generally allowed for, sometimes rebuked, but always recognized instantly. To the healthy soul there is something in the very nature of certain pleasures which warns us that they are exceptions, and that if they become the rules, they will become very tyrannical rules. Take a harassed seamstress out of the Harrow Road, and give her one lightning hour in a motor-car, and she will probably feel it is as splendid, but strange, rare, and even terrible. But this is not, as the relativists say, merely because she's never been in a car before. She has never been in the middle of a Somerset cowslip meadow before, but if you put her there, she does not think it terrifying or extraordinary, but merely pleasant and free and a little lonely. She does not think the motor monstrous because it is new. She thinks it is monstrous because she has eyes in her head. She thinks it is monstrous because it is monstrous. That is, her mothers and grandmothers and the whole race by whose life she lives have had, as a matter of fact, a roughly recognizable model of living. Sitting in a green field was a part of it. Traveling as quick as a cannonball was not. And we should not look down on the seamstress because she mechanically emits a short, sharp scream whenever the motor begins to move. On the contrary, we ought to look up to the seamstress and regard her cry as a kind of mystic omen or revelation of nature, 
as the old Goths used to consider the howls emitted by chance females when annoyed. For that ritual yell is really a mark of moral health, of swift response to the stimulations and changes of life. The seamstress is wiser than all the learned ladies, precisely because she can still feel that a motor is a different sort of thing from a meadow. By the accident of her economic imprisonment, it is even possible that she may have seen more of the former than the latter. But this has not shaken her cyclopean sagacity, as to which is the natural thing and which the artificial. If not for her, at least for humanity as a whole, there is little doubt about which is the more normally attainable. It is considerably cheaper to sit in a meadow and see motors go by than to sit in a motor and see meadows go by. To me personally, at least, it would never seem needful to own a motor any more than to own an avalanche. An avalanche, if you have luck, I am told, is very swift, successful, and thrilling way of coming down a hill. It is distinctly more stirring, say, than a glacier, which moves an inch in a hundred years. But I do not divide these pleasures either by excitement or convenience, but by the nature of the thing itself. It seems human to have a horse or a bicycle, because it seems human to potter about. And men cannot work horses, nor can bicycles work men enormously far of their ordinary haunts and affairs. But about motoring there is something magical, like going to the moon. And I say the thing should be kept exceptional and felt as something breathless and bizarre. My ideal hero would own his horse, but would have the moral courage to hire his motor. Fairy tales are the only sound guidebooks to life. I like the fairy prince to ride on a white pony out of his father's stables, which are of ivory and gold. But if, in the course of his adventures, he finds it necessary to travel on a flaming dragon, I think he ought to give the dragon back to the witch at the end of the story. It is a mistake to have dragons about the place. For there is truly an air of something weird about luxury, and it is by this that healthy human nature has always smelt and suspected it. All romances that deal in extreme luxury, from the Arabian Nights to the novels Ouida and Israeli, have, it may be noted, a singular air of dream and occasionally of nightmare. In such imaginative debauches there is something as occasional as intoxication, if that is still counted occasional. Life in those preposterous palaces would be an agony of dullness. It is clear we are meant to visit them only as in a flying vision. And what is true of the old freaks of wealth, flavor and fierce color and smell, I would say also of the new freak of wealth, which is speed. I should say to the Duke, when I entered his house at the head of an armed mob. I do not object to your having exceptional pleasures, if you have them exceptionally. I do not mind your enjoying the strange and alien energies of science, if you feel them strange and alien, and not your own. But in condemning you, under the seventh section of the eighth decree of the Republic, to hire a motor car twice a year at Margate, I am not the enemy of your luxuries, but rather the protector of them. That is what I should say to the Duke. As to what the Duke would say to me, that is another matter, and may well be deferred. The Triumph of the Donkey 
Doubtless the unsympathetic might state my doctrine that one should not own a motor like a horse, but rather use it like a flying dragon in the simpler form that I will always go motoring in somebody else's car. My favorite modern philosopher, Mr. W. W. Jacobs, describes a similar case of spiritual delicacy misunderstood. I have not the book at hand, but I think that Job Brown was reproaching Bill Chambers for wasteful drunkenness, and Henry Walker spoke up for Bill and said he scarcely ever had a glass but what someone else paid for it, and there was an unpleasantness all round then. Being less sensitive than Bill Chambers, or whoever it was, I will risk this rude perversion of my meaning, and concede that I was in a motor-car yesterday, and the motor-car most certainly was not my own, and the journey, though it contained nothing that is specially unusual on such journeys, had running through it a strain of the grotesque, which was at once wholesome and humiliating. The symbol of that influence was that ancient symbol of the humble and humorous, a donkey. When I first saw the donkey, I saw him in the sunlight as the unearthly gargoyle that he is. My friend had met me in his car, I repeat firmly, in his car, at the little painted station in the middle of the warm wet woods and hop fields of that western country. He proposed to drive me first to his house beyond the village before starting a longer spin of adventure and we rattled through those rich green lanes, which have in them something singularly analogous to fairy tales, whether the lanes produce the fairies, or, as I believe, the fairies produce the lanes. All around in the glimmering hop-yard stood those little hop-kilns, like stunted and slanting spires. They looked like dwarfish churches, in fact, rather like many modern churches I could mention, churches all of them small and each of them a little crooked. In his elfin atmosphere we swung round a sharp corner, and halfway up a steep white hill we saw what looked at first like a tall black monster against the sun. It appeared to be a dark and dreadful woman walking on wheels and waving long ears like a bat's. A second glance told me that she was not the local witch in a state of transition. She was only one of the million tricks of perspective. She set up in a small wheel cart drawn by a donkey. The donkey's ears were set just behind her head, and the whole was black against the light. Perspective is really the comic element in everything. It has a pompous Latin name, but it is incurably gothic and grotesque. One simple proof of this is that it is always left out of all dignified and decorative art. There is no perspective in the Elgin marbles and even the essentially angular angles in medieval stained glass almost always, as it says in Patience, contrive to look both angular and flat. There is something intrinsically disproportionate and outrageous in the idea of the distant objects dwindling and growing dwarfish, the closer objects swelling enormously and intolerably. There is something frantic in the notion that one's own father, by walking a little way, can be changed by a blast of magic to a pygmy. There is something farcical in the fancy that nature keeps one's uncle in an infinite number of sizes according to where he is to stand. All soldiers in retreat turn into tin soldiers, all bears in rout into toy bears, as if on the ultimate horizon of the world 
everything was sardonically doomed to stand up laughable and little against heaven. It was for this reason that the old woman and her donkey struck us at first, when seen from behind, as one black grotesque. I afterwards had the chance of seeing the old woman, the cart, and the donkey fairly, in flank and in all their length. I saw the old woman and the donkey, besant as they might have appeared heraldically on the shield of some heroic family. I saw the old woman and the donkey dignified, decorative, and flat, as they might have marched across the Elgin marbles. Seen thus, under an equal light, there was nothing especially ugly about them. The cart was long and sufficiently comfortable. The donkey was stolid and sufficiently respectable. The old woman was lean but sufficiently strong, and even smiling in a sour, rustic manner. But seen from behind, they looked like one black, monstrous animal. The dark donkey cars seemed like dreadful wings, and the tall, dark back of the woman, erect like a tree, seemed to grow taller and taller, till one could almost scream. Then we went by her with a blasting roar like a railway train, and fled from her over the brow of the hill to my friend's home. There we paused only for my friend to stock the car with some kind of picnic paraphernalia, and so started again as it happened by the way we had come. Thus it fell that we went shattering down that short, sharp hill again before the poor old woman and her donkey had managed to crawl to the top of it. And seeing them under a different light, I saw them very differently. Black against the sun they had seemed comic, but bright against the greenwood and grey cloud. They were not comic, but tragic. For there are not a few things that seem fantastic in the twilight, and in the sunlight are sad. I saw that she had a grand, gaunt mask of ancient honour and endurance, and wide eyes sharpened to two shining points, as if looking for that small hope on the horizon of human life. I also saw that her cart contained carrots. Don't you feel, broadly speaking, a beast, I asked my friend, when you go so easily and so fast? For we had crashed by so that the crazy cart must have thrilled in every stick of it. My friend was a good man, and said, yes, but I don't think it would do her any good if I went slower. No, I assented after reflection. Perhaps the only pleasure we can give to her or anyone else is to get out of their sight very soon. My friend availed himself of this advice in no niggard spirit. I felt as if we were fleeing for our lives in throttling fear after some frightful atrocity. In truth, there is only one difference left between the secrecy of the two social classes. The poor hide themselves in darkness, and the rich hide themselves in distance. They both hide. As we shot like a lost boat over a cataract down into a whirlpool of white roads far below, I saw afar a black dot crawling like an insect. I looked again. I could hardly believe it. There was the slow old woman with her slow old donkey still toiling along the main road. I asked my friend to slacken, but when he said of the car, She's wantin' to go, I knew it was all up with him. For when you have called a thing female, you have yielded to it utterly. We passed the old woman with a shock that must have shaken the earth if her head did not reel and her heart quail. I know not what they were made of. And when we had fled perilously on in the gathering dark 
spurning hamlets behind us, I suddenly called out, Why, what asses we are! Why, it is she that is brave, she and the donkey. We are safe enough. We are artillery and plate armor, and she stands up to us with matchwood and a snail. If you had grown old in a quiet valley, and people began firing cannonballs as big as cabs at you in your seventieth year, wouldn't you jump? And she never moved an eyelid. Oh, we go very fast and very far, no doubt. As I spoke, came a curious noise, and my friend, instead of going fast, began to go very slow. Then he stopped, he got out, and then he said, I left the stepney behind. The grey moths came out of the wood, and the yellow stars came out to crown it, as my friend, with the lucidity of despair, explained to me, on the soundest scientific principles, of course, that nothing would be any good at all. We must sleep the night in the lane, except in the very unlikely event of someone coming to carry a message to some town. Twice I thought I heard some tiny sound of such approach, and it died away like wind in the trees, and the motorist was already asleep when I heard it renewed and realized something certainly was approaching. I ran up to the road, and there it was. Yes, it, and she. Thrice had she come, once comic and once tragic and once heroic, and when she came again it was as if in pardon on a pure errand of prosaic pity and relief. I am quite serious. I do not want you to laugh. It is not the first time a donkey has been received seriously, nor one riding a donkey with respect. The end of chapters 25 through 27